Hey, Think Squad. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that helps fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. Now, you might know that along with podcasting, we have other initiatives here at the Think Institute to help dads lead their families in defending the Christian message. Right now, I'm working on an apologetics curriculum for homeschool co-ops. I lead a high school apologetics class, and I'm preparing for our up coming biblical worldview course through the Hammer and Anvil Society. So I do a lot of teaching and I'm a big believer that if you're going to teach a skill, you should also be an active practitioner of that skill, if you can. So to keep my apologetic skills sharp, I hop on Discord for an apologetics AMA, ask me anything, every couple of weeks in order to take tough questions about the gospel, the Christian message, and the biblical worldview. Sometimes the discussions that I have there inspire me to create a new ThinkPod episode, and that's exactly what happened with this episode. I had recently had a discussion with a man on Discord who calls himself the Jew of Wall Street, and you can listen to that. There's a link in the show notes. And we talked about whether or not Jesus of Nazareth really is the Jewish Messiah. Of course, as a Christian, I say he is. What about you? Do you believe the same thing? Not only that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but that he specifically is the Messiah, the anointed one promised to the Jewish people in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Right now, how well could you explain why that is? How easily could you teach that to your own kids? Well, in this episode, Roy Schwartz joins me again, and he's going to lay out in vivid detail the proof from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh, that Jesus of Nazareth really is the promised Messiah. Roy and I have talked about Passover, and there's a link in the show notes to that, and Shavuot, or Pentecost, there's another link in the show notes to that, and I believe that you will be educated edified, and encouraged by what he has to say about Jesus being the Messiah in today's episode. So, sit back, or better yet, sit forward, listen up, and I'll give you a heads up that you may want to be ready to pause this one and jot down notes as we go. So, have your Evernote app open, or a pen and a post-it, and there's a lot here, and it's really, really good. So, without any further ado... Here's my discussion with Roy Schwartz about the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, 
If you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge. And it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. All right, well, Roy Schwartz, welcome back to the Think Pod. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. Before we get started dealing with this very important topic, could you just take a minute and let our viewers and listeners know who you are, the kind of work that you do, and um, you know where they can follow your work? Okay. Well, uh, I'm a Jewish believer in the Messiah. I uh, grew up in uh, New York. I was bar mitzvah in the Orthodox tradition, and uh, after my bar mitzvah, I pretty much left the synagogue because it was so boring for me at least and um and by the age of college when i was in college i took off one summer i at the by the time of college i pretty much uh, did not really believe in a in a living god a god who was was there a god who was concerned about me uh, instead i had a kind of secular uh, worldview and uh, in the summer, uh, one summer I took off, traveled cross country and met some Jesus people. We used to call them Jesus freak in my day. And uh, they started telling me I needed Jesus. And um, I gave them every logical, rational argument why I couldn't, uh, why he couldn't be the only way to God. And with every argument, uh, they would share from the Bible, this or that. And finally, my ace in the hole was I'm Jewish. And usually they would end discussions with those uh, Jesus people. Uh, they would say, oh, um, and instead, they said, you're Jewish. Well, praise God, our Messiah is Jewish, our Bible is Jewish. If it weren't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't have either. And then they began sharing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here were Gentiles who knew more about my God and my people than I did. And I thought, what are these Gentiles doing with my God? And they said, you ask the God of Israel if Jesus isn't the Messiah. So I muttered something under my breath. And uh, over the time, a, a couple of months, uh, God started answering that prayer when I didn't think anything would happen. I saw the movie Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, and here was a presentation of a nonviolent revolutionary. Remember, this was in the early 70s when this was happening, and the Vietnam War and the protest movements were going, and here was a man of violence, and uh, I mean, or rather, a man of peace and love in the midst of a violent and religious uh, community, and uh, he fought against hypocrisy, against religion. He was for uh, just the truth and love. And on top of everything else, he was Jewish. I always thought he was Catholic. And so so with that, uh, you know, I, I, I realized that maybe I'd prejudge Jesus based on my parents' experiences in Germany and my mother's experiences and my father's experiences in the war. And uh, then I, uh, in school, in one of our classes uh, in English Lit, I, I studied uh, Paradise Lost, and I was overwhelmed. I had no idea about Satan. And in this book, uh, I was just impressed with the uh, personality of Satan and, and, his, and his maniacal desire to destroy everything good and pure and, and, uh, and ungodly, that he was uh, the enemy of God and that he was doing all he can to destroy creation. And so with those things, uh, I began to be more open to the possibility that, that God was real and that perhaps Jesus had something to do with it. 
And the Spirit of God just kept on working in my heart, and I came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And I accepted him. And what is your role right now? Well, when I when I realized that Jesus was the Messiah, I came to realize that uh, the majority of us Jews have no idea that you know that Jesus is the promised Messiah that mm -hmm. that he fulfilled all the the prophecies concerning the Messiah that you know I just, and as I read the New Testament I came across most Christians who believe that God was through with the Jewish people that the mm -hmm. church has replaced Israel that that uh, that uh, the Judaism or, or or the Jewish people are really not significant they're, they're not really part of God's plan and uh, and so that really upset me and um, and I was very uncomfortable in church because they had this supersessionist perspective and and um, and seemed to me to be very prideful and arrogant toward the Jewish people. And and um, and the Lord opened up the door to help me find Jewish believers in Jesus. And that's where I came in touch with the Chosen People Ministries. It was then known as the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And they were Jewish believers and they helped me to navigate the tension between uh, Judaism and Christianity, between uh, uh, biblical uh, Judaism and religious Judaism. I became a biblical Jewish person, uh, believing in the new covenant. There are two trajectories, Joel, you can take as a Jewish person. You can take uh, the trajectory that the Talmud gives that, that points away from Jesus as the Messiah, or you can take the biblical Talmud that God give, gave us, and that's the new covenant, which points to all the prophecies, all the law and the prophets pointing to the Messiah, both in his first coming and his second coming. And they complement Torah, the prophets, and the writings, or the Tanakh. And uh, I... Uh, as because of this uh, organization, Chosen People Ministries, and the people who were in it, they helped me to uh, understand the the new covenant in the light of the Tanakh and in, in light of the old. All right, and you're the Chicago regional director for Chosen yeah. People, yes? I, uh, over the over time, I went. They sent me to Moody Bible Institute. I went to Moody Jewish Studies Program, and then began serving as a missionary with them. Yeah. All right. So that's a pretty good setup, I think, for what we're going to be talking about. And, you know, our focus on this show is we want to help dads to lead their families in defending the Christian message. And what I always say is that the Christian message is the biblical worldview and the gospel. And the gospel is really at the heart of the Christian message, the gospel, which of course means good news. And before you can understand the good news, and before that can make sense to you, you have to understand the bad news. The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you, me, Jew, Gentile, male, female, the one thing we all have in common from time immemorial to now and onto the future is that we've sinned against a holy God. And God being just has to punish sin. And that means punishing sinners. There's no way out of it. God, if you were to do anything else, would be an unjust God. And God, by definition, is the standard of justice. So that's the bad news. That's where hell comes in. That's an eternity of God's wrath. But there's a Bible verse that says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And that, that should terrify us all because that talks about eternal death, separation from God's kindness and grace and in and, and, uh, and, and eternity, an everlasting state under his wrath. And then the question is, well, how do we get, is that is that it? Is it just death? Is that our destination? I know I've earned it. I've deserved it. But this very same Bible verse, Romans 6.23, says that the gift of God is eternal life 
So that, of course, makes us ask the question, well, am I on the side of death or do I somehow get this life? And all the world's religions try to say that you can be on the side of life if you've earned it somehow, if you've done enough good works, believed the right things um, in, in such a way that you've earned enough merit for yourself. Uh, but of course, that very same Bible verse tells us it is not by anything good that we do, but rather it's a gift of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so that's the heart of the gospel message. When Jesus is, of course, the mediator of that gift, because he's the only one that earned the gift, lived a perfect life, died a brutal death for our sins in place of sinners like us, so that now anyone who believes in him, who believes that he died for us, died for our sins, and was buried and rose again, and now reigns as king over the universe, will be saved and forgiven. So that's the call. I always want to make sure we talk about that every single episode, because that's true for anyone, anyone who will come to Jesus Christ in faith. But um, integral to this idea of the gospel, this idea of the good news, is the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word, or at least the English uh, version of the Hebrew word. And there's this idea that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. In fact, that verse, Romans 6.23, says that the gift is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A lot of people think, as you mentioned all the time, that they think that Christ is his last name, you know, Jesus Christ. Roy Schwartz, Joel Sedeke's Jesus Christ. You know, but of course, that's not his surname, that's a title. So maybe why don't we start there? What what does the word Christ or Messiah mean? What does the Bible tell? teach about the Messiah, and then we can get into today's big topic, which is this. How do we know that Jesus really is the Jewish Messiah promised in the Tanakh, in the in the Old Testament? So what is a Messiah? Well, a Messiah means uh, anointed one, uh, the uh, one who is to be sent, uh, who would bring uh, Israel into the kingdom, the, the the king of Israel, the one who would bring peace, the one who would bring uh, Israel into the eternal dimension or restore all that was lost to Israel as a result of her sin. There are several things that the Jewish people who anticipated the Messiah expected. Uh, according to the prophets, the prophets foretold how we would recognize the Messiah. Most Jewish people think that uh, the only requirement of the Messiah was that he would bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And even that uh, is taught in, in the New Covenant, Luke and so on. And if, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he was going to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men, then why is, if he came, why is there not peace on earth, goodwill toward men? And of course, you and I understand, Joel, that there are two comings of the Messiah. The first was to bring the kingdom to man based on uh, the filling of the Spirit, and that we would be, that the kingdom is now, but not yet, mm -hmm. that there's a future aspect of the kingdom yet to come. Uh, but we can experience the kingdom when we abide in the King and in His Spirit. Yeah. But, but the, the prophecies foretold that he would, first of all, he would be a Jewish man, born of a, a Jewish virgin, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, a son will be born unto us, a child will be given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah gave a glimpse, and, and then Micah said where he would be born. Uh, Micah chapter 
5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you be little among the clans of Judah, out of thee shall come one from whose goings forth are from days long ago from eternity, from the eternal realm. And so we knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We knew that he would be a son of David. Uh, we knew that he would come from a virgin. Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Uh, Jewish people might argue well, that word uh, um, Alma in the Hebrew could be a young woman. Doesn't necessarily mean a virgin, but when the Jewish scholars were asked to translate the the uh, the Torah and the and the writings into Greek, the word they chose to use for the word uh, Alma. They translated to Parthenos, which is the same uh, kind of word that means virgin, means yeah. a person who's never slept with a woman. So, so Isaiah seven fourteen said that he had to be born of a virgin. Uh, that he had to be like Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up a prophet like you. Uh, Psalm 110 tells us that he would be like Melech Tzedek, uh, a king of righteousness, who was king of Salem. He was the one who Abraham uh, gave a tenth of the spoils after the victory God gave him against the alliance of five nations that attacked uh, um, uh, his nephew Lot in uh, Sodom. Um, that he would be a descendant of King David from Isaiah 11. And just they're just over 300 different prophecies. So, I mean, I could list them all and we could look at them all, but, but, but there are definite uh, um, indications from the prophets mm -hmm. uh, that point to a suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53. Um, and actually what the rabbis understood was there are actually uh, two types of Messiah. They called one Messiah ben Joseph, and right. they called him Messiah ben Joseph because he would be like Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, who was uh, sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and through a chain of miraculous events became Egypt's savior and becomes the deliverer of Egypt by the interpretation of, of dreams and becomes second only to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. And uh, his brothers who betrayed him uh, then are brought before him without recognizing who he is. And then eventually through a chain of events, he reveals himself to them. And it is indeed uh, that Joseph becomes their savior, this one that they betrayed. And so uh, the rabbi saw that the first set of, uh, or the, the, the first type of Messiah was like Joseph, betrayed for, by his brethren, sold for the price of a slave. Uh, no good thing happened to him, and he was betrayed by his own brothers. Mm -hmm. And then he becomes their savior, their deliverer. And then the rabbis see that there's other prophecies that talk about the coming king, the Messiah ben David, that he's like King David, that he will restore Israel to its greatest uh, glory, uh, that he will rule over the nations, uh, that he will be a king over all the nations, and every tribe, kindred, and nation will come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord of hosts, as Zechariah chapter 14 describes it talks about the nations trying to wipe them out and, the, and then the messiah appears in his glory in his in his role as as deliverer he overcomes the the anti-semitism and the uh, nations that are sought to destroy the jewish people and establishes his kingdom in rule in jerusalem and uh, rules for uh, the messianic age of a thousand years and uh, and so those are the messiah ben david so we have two messiahs and we you and i joel and and christians believe in the first coming of messiah and we also believe that he is coming to rule and to reign mm 
Mm-hmm. We may debate on some of the details. In fact, you and I do yes. have, uh, have uh, certain differences. But the fact of the matter, we are agreed that at any moment he could return. Yeah. Amen. So there's all these prophecies. And, you know, you and I, you and I look at, um, we look at these prophecies and to us, I, I mean, it seems obvious. It seems obvious that Jesus fulfills them. And the, the remarkable thing to me is that there's some of the prophecies that are things that Jesus could control. For example, you know, he will, he will ride in, uh, behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you riding on a donkey. Okay, so Jesus goes, what we call Palm Sunday, um, which I guess would have been at the beginning of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Is that correct? In preparation of Passover, it's uh, the time where the lamb was set aside, the tenth. Yeah. And he goes in and he has his disciples get a donkey, rides it into Jerusalem. So that's a, a self-conscious thing that Jesus does to show he believes himself to be this Messiah. But then there are other things, of course, that are completely out of his control. Being born of a virgin, being in the royal line of David, being born in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, I was, I was reading in John today. And um, I was reading in John and I was reading in Isaiah. And in John, it talks about... It's, it, it's this remarkable irony that, that the author puts into the story, because on the one hand, you've got people saying, um, you know, uh, we know where, where Jesus comes from. He comes from Galilee. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. And, and that's true. And then you've got other people going, um, this, a separate story, but related. No, we know where he comes from. Or uh, what do they say? Uh, he he comes yeah, from. He come from Nazareth. That's right. Yeah, and, and yet he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. That's right. And that was something he didn't arrange because the king had decreed that everybody had to go to to, to the city of birth right. uh, to register. So totally out of his control, yeah. and and the scripture acknowledges that he did come from Bethlehem, which was prophesied. But in reality, though, in truth. They didn't really know where he came from because, of course, his origins, as the prophets say, are from everlasting. And so even John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, when Jesus begins his ministry, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist tells the crowds, this is the one who is before me. He, Even though he comes after me in terms of his ministry, he's actually, he ranks before me, but he also was before me mm-hmm. because he's before everything. Right. He's... And then, you know, in the beginning of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, in the great Yohannine uh, prologue, it says that um, in the beginning was the Word. So John, the evangelist, the author of John, takes his origins all the way back. Um, is there any indication in the Old Testament that the Messiah would not only be born of a virgin, not only be born in Bethlehem, but would actually have origins from everlasting, that he actually would be yeah, like a five. God in the flesh? What does that say? Uh, but you, Bethlehem, though you be little among the clans of Judah, yet one will come out of you, uh, whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Let me read it exactly. Um, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Uh, the actual Hebrew is is Olam, from eternity. Hmm. So... So one could say, well, that's that's a prophetic utterance that you know he it was written in the book that he would come. Yeah, uh, that doesn't necessarily say that 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 that's eternal. But there are other scriptures uh, that that allude to the fact that the Messiah 
came from eternity. Yeah, and then when you when you factor in the claims that Jesus himself made, I and the Father are one. You know, my Father is working up until now, and I am working. And you see the effects. Uh, oh, oh, or um, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Right. And they say, well, you're not even 50 years old. And yet Abraham saw you. And he says, I tell you the truth before Abraham was, I am. And so when you look at the claims of Jesus, you, you at least understand that he is claiming to be this one whose origins are from everlasting. Yeah, Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. His name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So the idea of Mighty God and Everlasting Father being the name of this child is a reference to his eternality. Yes. And, and, that, you know, and that he's God. Right. Right. And so you've got these prophecies which claim that the Messiah will come and will be, there's at least a strong indication that he will be God in the flesh. You know, you've got David in the Psalms saying in Psalm 110, 110, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord. Right. And then, of course, Jesus brings up the, the, the problem, if you will, quote unquote, with that when he says, how can David call the Messiah his Lord if he's his son? Because in those days, a patriarchal society, no father or ancestor is going to consider his descendant to be his Lord. That does, that's not how the society works. The, the elders get the respect. And so if David is the elder, the, the ancestor of the Messiah, why is he calling the Messiah his Lord? So that's a strong indication that David understood the Messiah would be uh, at, at least in terms of however much David understood, insofar as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say those words, that's an indication that the Messiah would be of divine origin. Yeah, another another classic is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against uh, together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah saying, let us tear their bonds from us. And then it goes on to describe that I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And, uh, and so you are my son. Uh, and it goes on to describe that this son is on, on, on a plane with the father. Yeah. Uh, and in verse 12, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and perish, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And of course, uh, in in every Passover, we say, "Blessed be He who comes." Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed be He who comes in the name of the Lord. And and Yeshua came in the name of the Lord. Yeah, that's what they were going back to. That uh, you know uh, that He is Lord. And yeah. uh, right. That's what they cheered on Palm Sunday. Uh, right. Hosanna. You know, Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And so. Right. So whether they fully realized what they were shouting or not. And, you know, the interesting thing, too, um, when Jesus enters in on Palm Sunday, so one week before Passover, one week before he's crucified, he he comes to the temple. This is right before he cleanses the temple, the, whether the, it was the first or second time is debated. But I, I personally think it was the second time. Um, and 
And he goes to the temple. It's very significant as well, the fact that the temple was still standing. Because if you go back to Daniel chapter 9, in uh, verses, uh, let's see, like 24 and following, it talks about the anointed one, the Messiah, literally, the Messiah. And it says he'll be cut off and will have nothing. So he'll be killed, in other words. And then the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with the flood. That word for sanctuary, that's a that's not, you know, we call our church um, meeting halls sanctuaries. We sort of think of, you know, it's sort of like a synagogue or something. But back then, sanctuary had a specific name. It was the holy place, mm-hmm. sanctuary, the sanctum. And so in order for the people of the coming ruler to destroy the sanctuary, the, the temple has to still be standing. Well, here you've got a situation, a prophecy, and I wonder if you would interpret the same way I do, where the the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to be killed at a time when the temple is still standing. Right. That means he's only got until 70 AD for the Messiah to come. Right. After that, Anyone who claims to be the Messiah can't be the Messiah, even if even if he were to fulfill every, even if he were to be born of a virgin, even if he were to die and come back to life, as Isaiah fifty three talks about, which we can talk about. We haven't talked about I, uh, we haven't talked about that really yet. But even if he were to fulfill every other prophecy, if he comes after seventy A.D., he can't be the Messiah because that's where Daniel's the temple. One more time, because he did not come to the temple, right? So do you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and, and moreover, there's even a testimony of that in the Talmud, in the Jewish writings. Really? Talmud is the commentary on, on the, the rabbinical trajectory that leads away from the Messiah. And yet, in the Talmud, there is a testimony regarding the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, after the priest offered the offerings in the Holy of Holies, the only time that the, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies was on the Day of Atonement. Most people think the Day of Atonement was for individual atonement. Uh, you ask most Jewish people, 90%, 90%, maybe more, um, the Day of Atonement is when I find that God forgives my sins, that if I, if I pray and if I repent and so on, I'll have a forgiveness of sins. But that was not what the Day of Atonement was. Right. It was for national atonement. Uh, it was to renew the covenant. Every other day you could go to the temple and find personal atonement by offering the sacrifices. So on the Day of Atonement, there were a couple of things that only the high priest could do. And one of them was to offer a, a lamb on, t- on in the Holy of Holies, the blood. He would take the blood, enter into the where the Ark of the Covenant was, the only time it was entered into, the Kadosh Kadoshim put blood on the mercy seat, then he would come out after doing that and lay his hands on the other lamb or goat. Actually, it was an Assyrian lamb, Assyrian goat. It was beautiful. It looks like a lamb, just gorgeous animal. Mm. And he would lay his hands on the one that was chosen by Lot to be Azazel, the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. He would lay his hands on him. There was a scarlet ribbon that was placed around his neck. When the when the priest laid his hands on the scapegoat, he would remove the ribbon. The goat would be then led off into the wilderness, and eventually, actually, they had a man chase it off a cliff so that the sins which were on the goat, the scapegoat, would not come back into the town. Is that right? And, yeah, and then that scarlet ribbon was placed on the outside of the holy place. And according to the Talmud, that every year a miracle occurred that when that goat died in the wilderness, that red ribbon turned white, denoting that their sins were forgiven and that the covenant was renewed. However, for some reason, we don't know why, 35 years before the temple was destroyed, that scarlet ribbon stopped changing color. It stopped going from red to white. Well, 35 years before the temple was destroyed, the veil in the temple, we read, 
was rent in two, and no longer would their the covenant with Israel be renewed. God who is dwelling in the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat was and the blood was placed, was removed when the veil was rent. When Jesus died on the cross, God left the building. And there's a testimony in the Talmud that says something cataclysmic happened on the Day of Atonement that that demonstrated that something changed when Jesus died. Wow. They don't I say... They don't say when Jesus died. They say 35 years before right. the temple was destroyed, and that's approximately when Jesus died. Right, right. Wow. That, that, is, that is amazing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, 35 years is approximate, but even the siege of Jerusalem, I think, started in 67 anyway, mm -hmm. which puts it right about almost exactly 35 years. I mean, maybe give or take six months, right. but um, which, you know, Yom Kippur only happens once a year anyway. So there's going to be some uh, some wiggle room there. But that's that's unbelievable. That's incredible. It's not unbelievable. It's um, it's 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 a it's, testimony. It's a exactly it's a, it's a secular or a, a rabbinical testimony yeah. that that something cataclysmic happened the same time Jesus died on the cross. Yeah. So, you know, um, shifting gears a little bit, I made a statement recently in a conversation that I had. I, I believe I told you about it. So I do these apologetics AMAs, Ask Me Anythings. I do them on Discord, which is a chat and voice server. You go on there. It's an app um, or a program. You go on there and, and you can do a voice chat room. And there's this... A moderator on there. He owns one of the servers. His name is Ellipsis. That's his stage name. And he, every two weeks, he hosts these AMAs for me. And so I'll go on as the Christian apologist and I'll answer questions. And I, you know, I love doing that kind of stuff. Just like I know you love answering questions and talking with people about theology. And um, so makes sense that Elisa married me because that's what she's, you know, that's what she's used to you doing her whole life. Um, but the the conversation that I had, oh, for those of you who don't know, Roy's also my father-in-law. <laughs> so, in case you didn't see the other episode, and I'm and I'm willing to be on his show. Isn't that incredible? And yeah. he, he's, he admits it. So, um, the the conversation that I had was with this uh, this gentleman whose whose uh, handle on there was the Jew of Wall Street. So I don't know if he's into investing or what, what have you, but he. Um, he and I were, were talking and we were getting into how the festivals, the feast days of the Old Testament, you know, the in the in the uh, prescribed in the Torah, all point to the Messiah, all point to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about Passover. We talked about, um, you know, you and I, of course, have had conversations about Shavuot, about um, about Passover. And what he said was. Well, not Hanukkah. Hanukkah doesn't point to Jesus. And I actually misspoke. So I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a retraction because I was as I said, I was reading in John today. I was reading, I believe, in John eight, although I'm reading my reader's Bible, which doesn't have the chapters. And I said, No, Jesus was standing in the in the temple area on Hanukkah when the menorah would have been lit. John and he 10, Yeah, but it was in John eight when he declared himself to be the light of the world. The context of tabernacles. Tabernacles, right. That's right. Uh, the illumination um, of the temple that occurred every night of tabernacles. So that was not Hanukkah. And this is where I misspoke. Yeah. So I said that he was standing in front of the, you know, the menorah, but no, it would it have was. been. The it, was a, it was a menorah, not the menorah in the holy place. There were four golden candelabras that were set up in the courts, the court of women that illuminated every court in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was reminiscent of the pillar of cloud by night or the fire by night. Okay. And so they would light up 
these menorahs. It's not it's not the seven tiered menorah, mm -hmm. just huge giant candelabras that okay. uh, that was lit up that lit every court in Jerusalem. So he was standing in front of the candelabras. It was not, however, the feast of dedication, also known as Hanukkah. Right. That happens two chapters later, and right. Jesus does make some incredible claims about himself. Yeah, he says he's God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, during Hanukkah. Wait, what? That's right. So, so I got my, uh, so it was, it was during Sukkot tabernacles when he called himself the light right. of the world, but declares himself to be divine, declares himself to be God right. on, um, uh, on Hanukkah. So right. and, still and significant. There's no, still, there was no Hanukkah. There would have been no Jesus because Hanukkah was when the, the Maccabees cleansed the temple and uh, rededicated it so that there could be the temple that Jesus could come to, that the Messiah could yeah. come to. Because if it was Antiochus, he would have destroyed the whole thing. Right, that's right. So they they drove uh, they drove Antiochus out, right. and then of course that's that's where you've got the first abomination that causes desolation, right. and then that's what Jesus refers back to, which I believe was fulfilled again in seventy A.D. when Titus and his armies uh, came to Jerusalem. That's where filed you, it again. That's where you and I disagree. Right, 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 right. That's fine, and and someday we'll have that conversation uh, probably on the show, Lord willing. If the if the Lord tarries, um, but okay, so we've talked about the the prophecies. We haven't. You're right. We haven't covered them all. It would take probably multiple shows for us to cover them all. But we've hit some big ones. Can we talk briefly though about Isaiah 53, that lost mm -hmm. chapter, that lost chapter that's not read in the synagogues? Can we talk about Isaiah 53, and then can we talk about what is the significance? Let's really drive it home for any Jewish listeners, non-believing Jewish listeners. And I always want to specify because you're Jewish and you believe Jesus is the Messiah, that Yeshua is the Messiah. So I don't want to just say Jewish as if, you know, that's the that's the default where Jewish people simply don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. There are many Jewish people, many thousands of Jewish people who do. But I want to specify for, for non-believing, as I would call them, non-Christian Jewish people, um, what should be the response here? What's the challenge to leave them with? And then how do we transmit this information to children? So we have a lot of young dads who listen to this, a lot of aspiring fathers. How do they talk to their kids about the significance that Jesus is the Messiah and how to talk to their Jewish friends? So there's a lot there, Isaiah 53, Jewish listeners, and then talking to dads, whatever order you want to tackle those in, but let's let's dive into that. Well, let's begin with Isaiah 53. And actually, the context of Isaiah 53 begins in Isaiah 52, 13. And uh, the greater context, of course, Isaiah, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we have essentially the discipline of God upon his servant. Israel is my son, uh, God said in Exodus chapter 4, my firstborn among the nations. And because Israel failed as a son, God disciplined her. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah talks about that discipline, because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And boy, he really loves us Jewish people. Right. But, but from chapter 40 through chapter 66, the rest of Isaiah, he talks about the restoration, the salvation, the redemption, uh, the the uh, re rebirth, if you will, of, of his chosen people. And the culmination uh, of it, uh, a key aspect of it, is him sending his servant, the servant of the Lord. 
And Isaiah 52, verse 13, begins this whole section describing this servant who would be the Redeemer, the one who would restore Israel to its sonship, the one who would uh, make Israel to be what she was intended to be, a priest uh, to all the nations. And that will one day happen. Uh, and so <clears throat> Isaiah 52, verse 13 begins this whole servant uh, motif or this whole description of the servant who's going to come. And it says in verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, Israel, so his appearance was marred more than any man. You know, many Jewish people say, you know, when you talk about, when you read this section, they'll say, well, this is describing the Jewish people. Isaiah uh, the, the suffering servant is Israel. It's the Jewish people. And to degree, that's true. Israel is the servant of the Lord, but they are a fallen servant. And so God had to send a perfect servant to restore the fallen servant. Just as God sent a second Adam to restore all mankind, God had to send a second Israel. Now, Jesus is both the second Adam, and he's also the second Israel. He's the mm. perfect. Israel. He's also the perfect Adam. And so, uh, <clears throat> just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. So here's this servant is going to come, and he's going to reveal himself, not just to Israel, but he's going to be revealed to all the nations. All the nations will recognize him. And virtually that's been fulfilled. Every nation, every kindred, every tongue recognizes that this one who came to Israel, to the Jewish people, is in fact King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is that a reference to Yom Kippur as well? He will sprinkle many nations. Is that a reference to the sprinkling of the blood? It's talking about, actually, it's a reference to Isaiah, um, I'm sorry, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, where uh, he will sprinkle um, uh, uh, clean water on them. But uh, Ezekiel came after Isaiah, though. Yeah, but it's still a, a reference to the sprinkling. And, and the idea of sprinkling does refer to the sprinkling of blood upon the nation of Israel. When when the covenant was made with the Jewish people, Moses sprinkled the, the sacrificial blood on the nation, on the mm -hmm. book, on, on every on Yeah, the that's right. Doesn't he he actually he actually took the blood and actually uh, waved it out and sprinkled the the actual the, the the multitudes that were gathered there, didn't he? Correct. Correct. That's right. So here it says he's going to sprinkle many nations, not just the ethnically Jewish people, but many nations. That's incredible. Correct. That's right. That's, yeah. what, that's what makes us uh, one in Messiah, Jew yeah. and Gentile. We are, you have come under the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb, mm -hmm. the blood of the Messiah. All right, so he will sprinkle many nations. And then it goes on in chapter 53, who has believed our message? And so Isaiah is saying, you know, who's going to believe what I'm telling them? Mm. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he goes on to describe this one who's going to come, the servant, for he, this servant, grew up before him, the father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty. And by the way, he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Uh, Isaiah 11 talks about a shoot will, will uh, grow from the stump of Jesse. Yeah. And a, a branch from his roots will take root. 
so the kings of Israel would be cut off and then uh, as as in a, a like a giant tree would be cut off and then it seems like the tree is gone finished done mm-hmm. and then a sprout comes up and that's that's kind of what this is referring to what, what an incredible image of hope too you know you can you you almost get the sense that uh you know there's like the end of a movie or something and the tree is the tree is uh cut down and the stump is is uh just you know the tree is just decimated there's this dry barren stump and then you know it kind of zooms in and there's this shoot coming out of the ground you can almost imagine okay roll credits there because the sequel's coming you know right. it's like it's just this incredible dramatic cinematic picture of uh, and that's oh. and, that, and that's essentially what israel was at the time that jesus came it was a oh. uh, parched ground it was uh it was uh, burned and pillaged by rome and every other nation that came before it yeah uh, it had no stately form or majesty that we should look and uh, and now it refers to the servant who had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him mm. or appearance that we should be attracted to him he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. So we're talking about uh, uh, the servant of the Lord and not a nation. We're talking about a man, yeah. a, man of, a man of sorrows, not a nation of sorrows, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we Jews did not esteem him, but surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. Mm. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. That's what we said. Oh, it's God who's punishing him. He's unrighteous. He's a sinful man. And we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But the, the prophet goes on to say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. In other words, we deserve to be chastened, but it was put on him. Hmm. And by his scourging, we are healed. He took what we deserved. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We, you know, that's the idea that all of us have gone our own way. Mm-hmm. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord laid on him our iniquities. <clears throat> he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter. Like a sheep that's silent before its sheep or shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So what we see here in in verse seven is this idea of him being the lamb that would would be taken out of the land of the living. Um, in the next verse, it says, "By oppression and judgment, he was taken away." And so he's the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter, as John described him. John the immerser, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he's that lamb. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And this is what would happen to lambs when, when every day you could go to the temple, when you recognize you were in sin. A Jewish man could go and go to the temple, and he would bring his lamb, and he would lay his hands on the lamb. The priest would come out and greet him, and he would uh, then hand the Jewish man the knife and, and uh, tell him to lay his hands on that lamb, putting his sin on the lamb. And with the knife given to him by the priest, he would have to lift the neck of the lamb and he would have to slit the lamb's throat. The priest would gather the blood and offer it on the altar. But the idea was that the person who sinned put his sin on the lamb and he had to kill the lamb. Yeah. And so this is what's going on here. He um, is uh, silent. He's our lamb, but he's doing it for me. 
it wasn't the, just the Jews that killed Jesus. It's the sinner who kills Jesus. Yeah. Um, unless you and I acknowledge that he died for me, mm-hmm. that, that his blood is on my hands, that I put my sins on him. If I don't do that, I can't have atonement. Yeah. So to say that the Jews did it and not the Gentiles or, or you know, we Jews say, no, it was the Italians who did it. And the reality is, <laughs> right. the, re- the reality is, is that unless I acknowledge that I did it, um, Jew and Gentile, unless yeah. I personally apply it, just as that lamb had to be killed by the offerer. So that's what we have to do with the lamb of God, acknowledging that my sin is on him. Yeah. And so he's like a lamb. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, the people who were living at the time of Jesus, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. And then it goes on to say his grave was assigned with a wicked man. And that literally was happened. He, was, <clears throat> he died with two other uh, condemned murderers. Can I, can I just interrupt you right there? Because in verse 8, uh, in the version I'm reading, I'm reading the CSB, it says, for he was cut off. This is the second part of verse 8. For he was cut off from the land of the, of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. That's Daniel 9. He was yeah. cut off. Right. So this is so there's just absolute remarkable harmony between these two prophets. You've got one writing, you know, uh sort of during the beginning of the exile, I believe is when Isaiah was writing. Then you've got Daniel 70 years later writing two totally separate visions, these apocalyptic visions that each one is having. And they're both talking about one's talking about the the anointed one, the other one's talking about the servant of the Lord, and they're giving absolutely purely uh totally collaborative uh compatible descriptions from from you know different angles and yet yeah. you've got the exact same thing happening he's cut off and it's like it's like it, it, it it's so clear when you synthesize what the old testament prophets are saying about the messiah he will be cut off and not only will he do it at a particular time in history while the temple is still standing but he will do it for a particular purpose for the sins, and this is the amazing thing, because here you've got the classical definition of Yom Kippur meaning being uh, for the nation, national atonement, but then you've also got, in a sense, this modern conception of Yom Kippur too. It's for my sins. Mm-hmm. It's so so. It's like either way you look at it. If you want to look at the old, you know, the biblical definition of Yom Kippur, but even if you want to say the, I would say the less accurate version of Yom Kippur, where it's for the individual sins, that's okay too, because it's for us. Here in Isaiah fifty three, we see that it's for us as well. By His stripes, we are healed individually so that's really to me that's really amazing how those two passages speak to each other agree okay so please continue so is uh so he was so it goes on in verse eight by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that as you said he was cut off the hebrew word there is uh, gerar um i'm sorry gazar uh, that's the hebrew word out of the land of the living for the transgression for the sin of my people to whom the stroke was due. So he, instead of us uh, dying for our sin, he died for our mm. sin. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and that's you know where he had those two other men beside him. Mm. Yet with a rich man in his, in his death, that's when uh, the Jewish uh, member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Nicodemus and uh, Josephus, came to take his uh, uh, body and bury him in the tomb of Joseph. Mm. A very wealthy Jewish man who was part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who ruled Israel. Mm. 
mm. because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. He was pr pure. Uh, but it was, but here's the key thing. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, yeah. putting him to grief. Here's God's righteous servant, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. I mean, imagine that. Why would God be pleased to put him to death? Well, for the joy set before him. Uh, he was willing to do it. And God, the Father, saw that this was what was needed to redeem Israel and to redeem the nations, those who would put their trust in him. Yeah. And he, would, he was pleased to do it. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, which you and I are part of, which mm -hmm. whoever comes to him, a part of his offspring, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. You and I have everlasting life because of what he did. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his, my righteous servant's hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, the righteous one, my servant, he will see it. God the Father will see it and be satisfied. This is, this is the idea of propitiation, the idea of satisfaction. God is satisfied with the work of Jesus on our behalf, on his servant, the righteous one. He goes on to say in verse 11, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, and that righteous one is, uh, it means that Sadiq, uh, a true saint, the righteous one, mm -hmm. my servant, will justify the many, and he, as he will bear their iniquities. So here we see the idea of substitutionary death and bearing our iniquities. And therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And of course, there's no, none greater than Yeshua, King of right. kings, Lord of lords. And he will divide the booty with the strong. Yeah. And you and I, we are partakers of that uh, richness, that uh, that uh, the spoils that the Messiah came. He he came to spoil, uh, to take the 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 spoils of uh, the adversary, Hasatan, who um, who tries, who thinks he's is taking the world's wealth, and mm -hmm. he takes it all away from him, and he gives it to us because he poured himself out to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So we see his, his ongoing work of uh, yeah. being a priest interceding for us. After the order of Melchizedek, yeah. David spoke of in Psalm 110. So it all comes together here in uh, Isaiah 53. This is, and even the second coming. Yes, this is like you're reading all four Gospels plus the book of Hebrews. Because right. you've got his priestly intercession, you and, know. And Psalms and yes. uh, and Daniel right. and, and and Moses, yeah. You know, I'll raise up a prophet, my servant, uh, you know, who will be like you. Well, it's I mean, the incredible thing here too, and Isaiah just slips this in, is after his anguish, he will see it or he will see light, depending on your translation, and be satisfied. And then it says, okay, verse twelve. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death. Now, wait a second here. You've got a servant who just submitted himself to death. So he's died and yet somehow he's going to get a portion with the righteous. Well, what's that talking about? Well, you don't get that unless you have resurrection right. and by the way, ascension. So he's, he's died. He's buried. He's a, he's assigned a burial place with the rich and then 
he he lives again and not only does he live again and just sort of meander off right off into the sunset but he takes the throne or this is now going back to daniel chapter 7 which we haven't talked about yet but the son of man seated who takes his seat comes in the clouds takes his seat next to the ancient of days and receives a kingdom and a dominion that will last forever so here you've got that here all, in Isaiah. Daniel, all in this in the Tanakh, all in the Torah, the writings and the prophets. Yeah. It's all in the Jewish scriptures. It's the, you, you don't even have to have the New Testament. This it's, is why Paul yeah. and, and Apollos and, and the apostles would go into the synagogues and they would reason with the Jewish people and show them, look, Jesus is the Messiah. They right. didn't have revelation at the time. They didn't no. have, you know, they didn't have acts because they were living it. Right. The gospels hadn't been written, but they would right. go to Isaiah and they would go to Daniel. And when, when Paul writes, all scripture is profitable for correction, for proof, for training in righteousness, he's talking about the Jewish scriptures. Right. He's talking about this, Isaiah 53, etc. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Okay. So how do we teach this to our kids? How do, or, you know, our grandkids and, and how do we leave this legacy um, with the next generation? How do we communicate this and the importance of this to, um, you know, as you think about your grandkids, and of course, I've got four of those. Um, how do we convey this in a way that not only impresses the the greatness of the Lord Jesus on their minds and hearts, but also equips them to be able to share this with their Jewish neighbors? And I'm, I'm also thinking, listen, for my own kids, they've got friends who are not Christians who come over to our house and, you know, eat meals with us and, and, um, the bagels I occasionally bring the bay. That's right. Uh, yes. You, you know, you, you bring bagels from the promised land of the North, North shore down to us. Cause we've got a, you know, we're in a, a, a in the salute in the diaspora. Yes. Yes. We're in a, a, the wilderness out here when it comes to um, uh, bagels and Jewish delis. Um, so how do we communicate that? How do our, how should our kids and grandkids communicate that? Uh, in such a way that conveys the gospel and 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 uses the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, in order in order to do that. Well, I think probably the easiest and 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 the most obvious way is uh, the Jewish holy days. Hmm. Uh, certainly Passover. There's no greater joy, joyful time, if you don't make it boring. Yeah. Is, you know, is just uh, telling the story. The, the the gospel is in Passover. You know, we were in bondage, we were in slavery, and uh, and you can use, you know, you can use all kinds of illustrations around the table. And, and Deuteronomy 6 says, uh, this law that I'm giving you, you shall teach your children when you sit down, when you rise up, when you go in, and when you go out. And so the, the Jewish holy days are particular days, especially Passover, first and foremost. You know, you share about how we were in bondage and enslaved and, and so on, and then, and then, First fruits, which is uh, uh, during the week of unleavened bread, we eating this matzah. Why right? enough? You know, matzah is kind of fun the first day, the second day, but the third day, or fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. You know, so we would eat matzah and we would explain what matzah was all about, unleavened bread, and foreshadowing the bread that was afflicted, pointing to the one who was afflicted for us. And then on the on the day after the Sabbath. Of Passover is first fruits, where we we actually make an offering, a special offering of the very beginning of of our our paycheck, or in in ancient times, our the first uh, fruits, which was barley. We would uh, set that apart, and we would bring it to the temple and offer it to the Lord mm -hmm. first fruits, and explain that. And then we'd count off the days every day, fifty days. You would count a day. And, and you do that at the table. You do that with the kids and explaining that we're 
we're looking forward to the counting of the Omer because at the end of the 50th day, we have a new offering and the harvest begins. And of course, that points to the, the Messiah, the pouring out of the Spirit of God. 50 days after he rose from the dead, and that was on first fruits he rose from the dead. Now Messiah is the first fruits of those who, sl- who fell asleep. He rose from the dead, and then we count off 50 days, and that 50 days leads to uh, Pentecost, which mm-hmm. means 50, or Shavuot. And then we have the reminder of the giving of the Lord, Mount Sinai, the fire on the mountain, and, and how God married was married to his people Israel in, in the giving of the covenant of Mount Sinai. And of course, just by coincidence, as luck would happen, that, that's the day that the Spirit of God came into the hearts of believers. Right. And you can do all kinds of fun things with kids with that. Yeah. You know, uh, different languages, flashlights on your head with fire and so on. Um, so, I mean, there's all kinds of illustrations. And then you have the harvest period of the summer, then Rosh Hashanah, everybody blowing trumpets, and, and that speaks of uh, what is to come. I think the first the first uh, four feasts have been fulfilled in the first coming of Yeshua, and I think the last the three feasts are fulfilled in the second coming of Yeshua. Mm. The, the blowing of the shofar, the rapture of the church, the um, uh, Yom Kippur, the, the renewal of the covenant with Israel, the Day of Atonement, when all Israel will be saved, as Paul writes in Romans 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my covenant with them when they take away their sins. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, when they look upon him whom they've pierced. And all of those are designed for kids. I mean, you can do, and the greatest of all is tabernacles for Pete's sake. So, you know, building a tent in the backyard, a sukkah, mm-hmm. and uh, just having a fun time there. Um, you know, what kid doesn't like a sleepover outside in the backyard where right. it gets cold or if it gets wet, you can go into the house. But if it's nice, you sit, you eat out there, you sleep out there, and it's fun. So all of those are kids' programs designed by God to help us remember. And every holy day, every Sabbath is a, is a time to talk about the love of God. So I guess those are, those are just a, a, a beginning Purim, another one coming up uh, in March is, uh, you know, that's the Jewish Halloween where we dress up and <laughs> do all kinds of things, but but to, to remember Esther, Queen Esther. So there are biblical ho- holidays and holy days that God gave, Hanukkah, mm-hmm. a reminder of the Maccabees. I mean, it's just so many fun things you can do with kids. Yeah. You know, they, they you know the Jewish holidays are based on, you know, they tried to kill us. The Lord gave us a great victory. Let's eat. <laughs> it's good. That's and that's very gospel too, isn't it? They, oh yeah, yeah. They they killed they killed Jesus. He came back. Let's celebrate. That's right. Well, praise the There's Lord. All right. Well, I'm sorry. What's that? There's plenty there. So learn the Jewish yeah. holidays, and you have uh, fun times that you can make for the kids, and they're all available online. Well, speaking of online, how can people follow you, you and your work, and get more information from you? All right. Well, I have a website, RoySchwartz.org. And I have Bible studies, and I have, uh, you know, uh, discussions on the Feast of Israel, what they mean to us as believers, how old and new fit together, and uh, talking about uh, also, uh, yeah, that's at RoySchwartz.org, and and there's information about uh, my uh, ministry to the Jewish people through Chosen People Ministries at that website. You can find everything you need to know, and probably what you didn't want to know, in your case, Joel, uh, at... uh, at at royschwartz.org it's good to know how uh how the other side thinks you know right yeah and just uh 
two Jews, three opinions. That's right. Well, and of course, three Christians, four, four denominations. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who are listening on the podcast, that's R-O-Y-S-C-H-W-A-R-C as in cat, Z as in zebra, dot org. Check that out. And um, let me just give a quick disclaimer, too, because uh, it's been alluded to a few times, but um, Roy and I, well, we agree on probably 90%, definitely on all the majors, there's going to be some doctrines which, um, which he's he's going to refer to uh things mostly with regard to eschatology and things like that that um if you are a listener of this show you know that i don't endorse and if i were to casually talk about the things that i uh you know hold to he he wouldn't endorse um but the important thing is the gospel the important thing is jesus christ is the messiah and so this is this is part of the beauty of being able to to come together as followers of Jesus Christ and as brothers in Christ is we are in absolute lockstep on the most important matters of the faith. And God in his kindness, in his grace has made the most important doctrines, the clearest in scripture. So there is no getting around it. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And I, I just want to uh, reiterate and echo what we've been talking about where if you are listening to this, if you're watching this on YouTube or on the podcast or somewhere else, and you have yet, whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you have yet to turn from your sin, to turn from your disobedience of God, and to turn to Jesus, the Messiah, in submission and in faith, and you have yet to receive the new life that he gives and, and allowed him uh, acknowledge that he alone can lift your burden, I want to just um, encourage you to implore, to challenge you, to invite you to receive Jesus as the Lord, as the Savior who died for your sins, rose from the dead, and now reigns as the master and king over the universe. Come to him in faith and receive his eternal life. I uh, want to thank my guest, Roy Schwartz. Thank you so much for coming on. And let me just give a quick plug. If you're listening to this and it's not yet October 25th, we are starting a brand new Christian worldview course, biblical worldview course through the Think Institute. And uh, that is going to be run through our Hammer and Anvil Society, which is our discipleship wing. It's starting on December or on October 25th, running through December 13th. We're meeting on Monday nights at what time? Eight o'clock central, 8 p.m. central, running from eight to nine thirty on Monday nights. And we're going to go through the seven questions that every worldview must answer. And we're going to talk about how the Bible answers those key questions, the biggest, most important questions of life. And what, what, what I want to do is I want to equip you to be able to answer those questions and to point exactly in the Bible to where the Bible teaches those answers so that you can articulate and defend the Christian message, convey the good news of Jesus Christ, and equip your family and your children to do likewise. So we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be eight weeks. It will be robust, but this is an entry-level course. If you have no biblical, scholarly, theological training, philosophical training, that's okay. This this will be a perfect place to get started. And you know what? If you've got some training on your belt, maybe you've got a few years of Bible college, maybe you've been to seminary, this would be a good refresher for you. And I dare say we're going to look at things from a, maybe a little bit of a different perspective than what you've explored before. So to get more information on that, 
simply go to my website, thethink.institute slash worldview. I'll say that again, thethink.institute slash worldview. Check it out. If you have any questions, uh, you can email me at joel.setacase at crewcru.org. Also, if you want to partner with the Think Institute and the work that we're doing, you can go to thethink.institute slash partner. And that's a great way to support uh, my work and the work of the Think Institute. We'll make sure that you stay up to date on all the projects we have coming down the pipeline as well. All right. So again, thank you to Roy Schwartz. Dad, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I'm sure this won't be the last time, but uh, thanks for taking time out of your schedule and, uh, and coming on. I'm happy to do it. And just remember that there's nothing more Jewish in the world than believing in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Until next time, remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. I sure hope you heard something helpful today. I know I definitely did. And until next time, I hope it made you think. Hey, before you go, I wanted to tell you about the Hammer and Anvil Society. This is the discipleship wing of the Think Institute, and together we are pursuing biblical soundness, boldness, and brotherhood. We do that through cohort-based courses that help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Scripture says, quote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, end quote, Colossians 2, 8a. When it comes to philosophies and traditions, the Christian message has plenty of competition out there. There are many competing worldviews. Now, every worldview must answer seven questions. What is real? What is right? What can we know for sure? What does it mean to be human? What's the meaning of life? Where is everything headed? And who is Jesus? As followers of Jesus, we have to know not only how to answer these questions, but to answer them from Scripture itself, from God's Word. What are the Bible's answers? And how are those answers unique among the world's systems? I know many of you are interested in digging deeper into the Christian message and developing your articulation of the Christian message to those who believe differently. So, I wanted to personally invite you to join this Biblical Worldview course. After this eight-week course, you will be better equipped to articulate and lead your family in articulating the Christian message. Because before you can defend it, you have to know what it says. Join us on Monday nights, October 25th through December 13th, 2021 from 8 to 10 p.m. Central. And you can sign up at thethink.institute slash worldview. Again, sign up at thethink.institute slash worldview. It's only eight weeks, but could really have a lasting impact on your spiritual journey. Feel free to invite a friend. I'll see you there.